Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings, everyone. I want to welcome all of us here at Center Street Church, those of us here at Central Campus, as well as those watching from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. One of my favorite uh, Christmas movies is The Nativity Story. It's a good visual portrayal of the story of Christmas. You see, it is difficult for us to wrap our heads around the Christmas story because of the disconnect, the cultural disconnect that exists between first century Jewish world and our 21st century today. And personally, I found this movie brought the Christmas story to life and helped me to see the tough realities of life 2,000 years ago. The harshness of travel, the political conflicts and the tyranny of the Roman Empire, Joseph's self-giving devotion, and more importantly, the humble arrival of baby Jesus born in a stable. And that one day in history forever changed the course of our world. I've been reflecting on the Gospel of John and what it has to say about Christmas the Christmas story, as you know, is found in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. It's from these two Gospels we know the events surrounding God's visitation of planet Earth. But the Gospel of John is unique. There is no nativity scene in John's Gospel. There is no genealogy to trace the human ancestry of Jesus. No mention of the angel appearing to Mary or Joseph announcing the arrival of the baby. There is no record of a pregnant Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem as per the Roman edict. There is no reference to the shepherds or wise men either in John's gospel. John basically leaves out the Christmas story, but he gives us the reason for Christmas. It's because unlike our culture, John is not interested in Christmas Day per se. Turning this into a big birthday bash for Jesus, where we ironically give presents to each other. But John's focus is the significance of Christmas. Why Christmas matters. What changed as a result of God coming into this world? What are the implications of the Advent? The Gospel of John challenges our culture the host of people celebrating this holiday season without a clue of why Jesus came into this world. And today we're going to stay away from the familiar Christmas passages. And I want to take us to the prologue of John's gospel. I'm calling my message, Because of Christmas Day. This time, if you're physically able, I'd like you to stand as we read from God's word, from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light 
so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the light of the world and yet you stepped into our dark, dark world. And it is because of your decision to enter into this world we have hope, we have guidance and direction, we have salvation. Every blessing that we enjoy today comes from your sacrifice. So as we seek to understand the significance of your incarnation, we pray that you will open our hearts, open our minds, that you will give us spiritual understanding. We pray that you will speak to us, Lord, in the power of your spirit. We ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Richard Dawkins is probably the most well-known of the new atheists. During a public discussion in Oxford with a former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dawkins candidly revealed that he loves a Christian hymn that begins with these words. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be. Dawkins confessed of inadvertently singing that hymn in the shower that morning. And he went on to say, the hymn went off the rails, and in his opinion, the most wonderful thing ever is the universe coming into existence out of nothing and producing beings such as humans with consciousness. And Dawkins completely missed the point of amazement of the hymn writer who actually wrote, it is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be, that God's own son should come from heaven and die to save a child like me. If I were to ask you, what is by far the most amazing miracle in the entire Bible, what would you say? Is it Genesis chapter 1? The creation story where God speaks and the entire universe comes into being? Is it the parting of the Red Sea where God made a way for the people of Israel to walk in the midst of water and reach the other side? Or are they the miracles of Jesus opening blind eyes, healing the lame, cleansing the lepers? Or is it Jesus' glorious resurrection? after being buried in a tomb for three days. Well, granted, all of these are amazing miracles, but in my opinion, far greater than all these miracles is this one miracle. The most profound of all mysteries, that which goes beyond our human comprehension, the greatest miracle of all 
is the incarnation. God coming in flesh. All the other miracles are impressive, but if we believe in the omnipotence of God, we know nothing is impossible for him who is all-powerful. So it is not a big deal for God to speak the world into existence, for God to heal, or even raise a dead, dead person back to life. But uh, the incarnation is a miracle in a class of its own because it is not about the display of God's power, but the setting aside of God's power. The incarnation is about God limiting himself to become one among us. It's the condescension of this great and mighty God that makes this miracle exclusive and unparalleled. Clearly, the incarnation is the paramount teaching of the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis called the incarnation the grand miracle. He wrote, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The incarnation was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. All of history awaited for this glorious moment, and for 2,000 years we've been looking back to it. God did not isolate himself from his creation like the gods of Plato and Aristotle, but he enters into the world of flesh and blood that he created. What we read just now from John's Gospel is one of the most sublime passages of the Bible. Many believe that this was a hymn that was being sung in the early church. Here in the opening verses of John's Gospel, we don't see the portrayal of a mild, helpless baby Jesus, but we come face to face with the cosmic Christ, the creator of all things, who brings all things into existence, the one who is equal to the Father, the second person of the Trinity. John argues that the story of Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. There never was a time Jesus wasn't around. And this eternally pre-existent creator God, out of his great love, emptied himself to take on flesh. That is the main point of John chapter 1, the incarnation of Jesus. The word incarnation literally means in flesh. God came with skin on. The highlight of uh, John chapter 1, and maybe the entire New Testament is verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The eternal God became human. That is Christmas. That's what we celebrate this season. However, we in the church, we are so used to hearing this there's a significant danger that we can lose that sen sense of excitement and awe. No other worldview or religion has the concept of incarnation as presented in the Christian faith. In some religions, God is so eminent in everything that incarnation is a regular occurrence. It's a petty idea. Every now and then, the gods would step into the world as humans or even as animals, and they return back to their heavenly abode. 
And there are other religions where the concept of incarnation, of God taking on a human form, is considered to be blasphemy. And in between these two wide spectrums is the Christian idea of incarnation, where it's presented as a once and for all awe-inspiring event. Without laying aside his divinity, Jesus took on full humanity. He was 100% God and 100% human. If you're wondering, what is the big deal about the incarnation of Jesus that we celebrate during this season? What's its significance? Why Christmas matters? I want to give us three points to consider. First of all, because of Christmas, we can know God. Look at the opening verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. The opening phrase of John's gospel begins with the words, in the beginning, the same phrase as the book of Genesis. So John is going to speak of the new creation or new beginning that is revealed in Christ. Now, why is John referring to Jesus as the word? The Greek word for word is logos, out of which we get our English word, logic. The Greeks believed that a rational or logical principle governed the universe, and they called it logos. But from a Jewish point of view, word referred to divine speech. John is presenting Jesus to both a Gentile and Jewish audience. In the words of New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, Jesus is the self-expression of God. As the word of God, he communicates all that God is to us. Simply put, Jesus is called the word because Jesus is all God wanted to say to us. Nothing more, nothing less. He is the fullest expression of God's nature and character. And the very reason why Jesus came into this world is to make God known. It's a mystery about who God is. This mystical, invisible, supreme, all-powerful being who created everything. Who is this God? If you want to know God, just look at Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 18 clarifies, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. One of the biggest and most significant questions that humanity has wrestled with for 2,000 years is who is Jesus? Is he one of many gods? A created being? A high angel? A good leader? A moral teacher? A prophet? Who is Jesus? Here in the opening chapter of John's gospel, you find the answer to that question in the most glowing terms. 
John is clear in stating that Jesus always existed. He was not a created being. Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the word. John also tells us that Jesus had a special relationship with God, a unique relationship. The word was with God. And then John makes this amazing declaration, which is one of the clearest indicators of the divinity of Jesus. The word was God. Jesus is God. And this great God took on flesh. He whom the entire universe cannot contain was contained in the womb of a woman. It was within Mary's uterus that Jesus' human body was knit together. It was her blood that carried him nutrients. As a child, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. One of the most memorable translations of John chapter 1 verse 14 is Eugene Peterson's message version. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Through Jesus, God came near. He became approachable. He moved into the neighborhood. The worldview of deism speaks of a God who is distant, who is uninvolved in the affairs of the world, who lets the universe run according to natural laws. He's like a clockmaker who has wound up the clock and let it run on its own. God has gone on a long celestial vacation and he's not engaged in human affairs. That's not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible came close. He didn't go on a celestial holiday. He packed up a heavenly U-Haul truck and came and pitched his tent in the neighborhood. And if we think God is someone who is far, distant, removed, and uninvolved in the affairs of the world, then we have a wrong image of God. The Bible presents to us a God who longs to communicate. He longs to reveal himself. He is eager to be involved in our personal lives. A number of years ago, I met a Hindu man in India who's passionately seeking for God. His daughter started coming to our church and that's how I came to know about him. He had made it the mission of his life to know God. So he spent hours every day meditating, reading scores of books, fasting, not sleeping for even a few hours. He was earnestly longing to know the Creator. And when I met him for the very first time, I talked to him about the simplicity of the gospel and gave him the Bible and I said, if you want to know God, just read this book. And I don't know where he is in his spiritual journey today, but his quest for God was so sincere that it touched my heart. You know, when you think about such forms of rigorous spirituality being espoused by many religions, Our self-efforts of fasting, meditation, and intense search for God make sense only if God is hiding, that God is playing a game of hide-and-seek. Listen to me, Christmas tells us that God is not hiding. He is eager to reveal himself to anyone who seeks after him. 
And you don't need to meditate for hours to discover who God is, but you come to him in childlike faith and you can know God personally. That is why when the angels announced the birth of Jesus, they called it good news of great joy for all people. Jesus is God's revelation to every single people group in this world. You cannot encounter God without encountering Jesus Christ. Because of Christmas, we can know God. Secondly, because of Christmas, God knows us. Not only we can know God, but because of Christmas, God knows us. I recently heard about a new restaurant that has opened in our city called the, the Dark Table. It claims to offer a dining experience unlike any other. And what's different about this place is this is a blind dining eatery where you will not be able to see your food because you will be dining in total darkness. The servers in the restaurants are all visually impaired, and they lead you to a darkened room completely devoid of light. No flashlights, no mobile phones allowed. It's pitch dark. By the way, if you're single and want to try your hand on blind dating, well, this restaurant will add a new level of adventure to your experience. And it seems when you are unable to use your eyes, all other senses come alive, and so food tastes better. And the restaurant owner was quoted on the media saying, welcome to the sightless world. For those of us who have the gift of sight, we take it for granted. What would it be like to enter into a world of blindness. I see a striking parallel here when we refer to Jesus as the light of the world who stepped into a dark, dark world. There has always been an accusation against God, and this is a legitimate accusation. How can God understand the disappointments and heartbreaks of the human heart? How can God, who's a spirit being, ever relate to us humans, ever sympathize with our needs and challenges? It was the chronic sufferer Job in the Old Testament who voiced out that complaint so very well when he articulated in Job chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, a set of questions. I'm disgusted with my life. I will express my complaint and speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not declare me guilty. Let me know why you prosecute me. Is it good for you to oppress, to reject the work of your hands, and favor the plans of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh, or do you see as a human sees? The last question is the most pertinent one. God, do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a human sees? The heart of the question Job is raising here is, God has a completely different viewpoint because of his privileged status. He sees with a completely different pair of eyes. He cannot understand the human predicament. 
God, do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a human sees? On the first Christmas day, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in that stable, God had eyes of flesh. And he looked at the world for the very first time as a human. And through the incarnation, God learned something that he had never known before, what it means to be a human. Think about this. God is the supreme power over everything. God needs nothing. The triune God existed in perfect community, in perfect harmony. He was beyond the need for food or safety. He did not feel physical pain. He existed in a realm beyond the confines of time. And then the creator became a human being. God, the Son, left the heavenly realm and stepped into this world as a fragile, helpless baby. And all of a sudden, he needed safety. So he entrusted himself to the care of his earthly parents like any other infant. Baby Jesus was hungry. He nursed on Mary's breast. Jesus felt pain when he scraped his knee or accidentally hit his thumb with a hammer. Jesus endured many heartaches and disappointments, struggles and temptations that we regularly encounter. Jesus faced family challenges and relational struggles that are so common to us today. God learned something through the incarnation. Theologian John Stott says, God set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. And do you know what is simply fascinating here? Jesus did not take on a human form temporarily. This was a permanent decision. His humanity wasn't a costume he wore for a season. The resurrected Jesus still dwells in a material body. From the moment Jesus was miraculously conceived in the womb of Virgin Mary, he will never cease to be human. He will be both God and man for all eternity. And that is why today we can say with confidence, God knows us, our experiences, not just because he's an all-knowing, omniscient God, but he knows it through his own personal experience of being a human. Because of Christmas, we can know God. God can know us. Lastly, because of Christmas, we have a choice. If you read uh, the Gospel of John, you will see that there's a contrast between light and darkness. That's one of the dominant themes in this book. The light is a metaphor for Jesus, and darkness is a metaphor for sin and rebellion. And John, throughout his book, presents to us the war that takes place between darkness and light. Look at verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a constant ongoing struggle between light and darkness, and the opposition to Jesus was severe. The devil was doing everything in his power to hinder Jesus from establishing God's kingdom. But all of the collective efforts of the enemy did not succeed in extinguishing that light. In the words of John Eldridge, Christmas is an invasion, the kingdom of God striking at the heart of the kingdom of darkness. The truth is, we all love stories of good triumphing over evil. The entire Star Wars uh, movies have become a phenomenon of an unprecedented nature because in a compelling way, they capture this fight or struggle between light and darkness. The focus is on an unlikely hero stepping up to save the world. And if you didn't know that uh, the latest Star Wars movie has just been released this weekend, then you must be from a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> you know, this uh, storyline of uh, good triumphing over evil captivates us. Somehow, as a culture, we are obsessed by it. It's the reason why we have so many superheroes and the one and only Wonder Woman. <laughs> Christmas is a great reminder. It's a reminder that darkness will not triumph, but the light will shine. That the darkness will not have the final word, but Jesus will. And what that means is, every single one of us have a choice to make. Whose side are we going to belong to? The side of darkness? Or are we going to join the light? Christmas is not good news until you understand the bad news. The Bible does not refer to the human race as good, innocent people who need some moral guidance and minor behavior alteration. Rather, the Bible categorically says, we are not just spiritually sick, but we are spiritually dead. That we are not just short-sighted, we are totally blind to the ways of God. And Jesus gives us light and life. He opens our spiritually blind eyes so we can see, and he infuses life into our dead spirits. And even as we hear this glorious truth, we are confronted in this very chapter with one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. After all the distance Jesus had crossed, in order to bring light to a dark world, much of the world rejected him because they chose to side with darkness. Rather than a welcome mat, the door was slammed on Jesus' face. Pastor Tim Keller communicated this so well in one of his articles. He writes, there's no way to have a real relationship without becoming vulnerable to hurt. And Christmas tells us that God became breakable and fragile. God became someone we could hurt. God became vulnerable because he was seeking for intimacy. Jesus 
came to his own. But they rejected him. They turned him away. They wanted nothing to do with him. But here is a glorious promise in the Bible for all those who do receive him. Verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is a legitimate entitlement for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. We receive this incredible gift, a gift, an inheritance that will never fade away. We are drafted into God's family and given the privilege of being called children of God. All of this, all of this is possible because of Christmas. One of the tragedies of this year was the passing of a Christian apologist, Nabil Qureshi. It was a tremendous loss for the world. In his book, No God But One, Nabil mentions about a conversation he had with a young Muslim woman. Her name was Sahar. Sahar was an international student, a resolute Muslim, but she had questions about what Christians believed. Especially, she couldn't accept the idea of God becoming a human being. God is the king of the universe and unimaginably holy. How is it possible for him to take on a human form? So Sahar voiced her major objection to Christianity. How can you believe Jesus is God if he was born through the birth canal of a woman and he had to use the bathroom? Aren't these things beneath God? That's a common Muslim objection because Allah doesn't enter into the world he created. He's too lofty to do that. Nabil affirmed her question and then asked her in turn, Sahar, let's say that you're on your way to an important ceremony and you're dressed in your finest clothes. You're about to arrive just on time, but then you see your daughter drowning in a pool of mud. What would you do? Let her drown and arrive dignified at the reception or the ceremony, or would you rescue her and arrive at the ceremony covered in mud? Sahar responded, of course I would jump in the mud and save her. Nabil asked her, Let's say there were others with you. Would you send someone else to save her, or would you go yourself? And Sahar responded, if she is my daughter, how could I send someone else? They would not care for her like I do. I would go myself, definitely. And here was the clincher, Nabil's response to her. If you, being human, love your daughter so much that you're willing to lay aside your dignity to save her, then how much more can we expect God, if he is our loving father, to lay aside his majesty in order to save his children? And I tell you, that is one of the brilliant illustrations of the incarnation. And not long after, 
Sahar decided to place her faith in Jesus Christ because the idea of God coming into this world had become personal to her. The incarnation is such a special doctrine, not just because Jesus was born, but he was born to die. You cannot separate the cradle from the cross. We, as humans, have removed ourselves from God because of our sins, our willful rebellion, our decision to follow the path of darkness. And God would have been totally just to punish us. Yet God, because of his deep, unconditional love for us, came into this world to bridge this gap. He left his heavenly throne, the worship of the angels and the heavenly hosts, to enter into this world, not as a royalty, not as some privileged person, but he was born to a teenage girl, an unwed mother. He lived as a carpenter, did menial job. He served people all his life. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. The baby born on Christmas Day was laid on a wooden feeding trough. And 33 years later, he will be laid on another piece of wood, the cross. He will die a horrific death on the cross, which will be the payment for all the wrongs that we have done. And because of that one act of obedience, God extends forgiveness to all who seek after him. And God was not obligated to do any of this. God did not need to become human. There was no compulsion or force. He did not need to lay aside his majesty. And yet he did it. The scripture affirms it. Why? The only explanation we can come up with is his deep, unconditional love for us. Incarnation tells us the extent God would go to redeem us because of his great love for you and me. He laid aside his majesty so you and I can be part of God's family. The Bible summarizes this so very well in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Church, that is the message of Christmas. We're going to close our service today by observing the Lord's Supper. And this will serve as a visual reminder for us of the significance of Christmas and why it matters today. Reflect on this for a moment. Jesus emptied himself of his glory, stepped into the mire and muck of our world. He did not insulate himself from his creation or our sins. He dived right in. Jesus became poor so we can become rich. It's a glorious exchange. We are poor. Jesus is rich, and yet he takes our place 
so we can truly be rich in the eyes of God. The riches here are not material riches. They are spiritual. For those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. That's why Jesus came into this world. So I want to encourage you now to close your eyes and take a moment to reflect on what you've heard. And let Christmas become intensely personal to you as you reflect on the glorious exchange that has taken place. Would you join me for closing prayer? Lord, we thank you for being such a faithful God, a God who stays true to his promises, that at the right time you sent the Savior, our Lord Jesus, into this world. That Jesus came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we thank you for this glorious promise that the same Jesus is coming back again to put an end to all the evil to once and for all vanquish the forces of darkness. We pray that we will be the bride of Christ, eager and ready to receive our bridegroom. So continue to prepare us, Lord, in these last days to be a witness to the light. And even if we pray in the midst of the frenzy that surrounds this holiday season, our eyes will be fixed on Jesus and the reason for his coming. Even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.